Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links, including to our cause of the month, Tipitina's Foundation. This week's guest is Lori Pepper, wife of the late alto saxophonist Art Pepper. She's released two albums of previously unreleased concert material from Unreleased Art Volume 1. This is Landscape. Pepper, since the first moment I heard him, has been my favorite 
alto saxophonist, and his music, if you know it already, you know has blazed its own trail. It was a sound like no other saxophonist, which was particularly difficult in the era immediately after Charlie Parker. If you don't know his music, you've got some great previously unreleased things to dig into now, thanks to the Widow's Taste label, which has released Art Pepper Unreleased, Volumes 1 and 2, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome the founder of Widow's Taste and uh, Art Pepper's wife, Lori Pepper, to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's 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 funny to hear myself described as a founder. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> what? I just released a couple of albums, but that's fine. That's fine. Well, it, it sounds, though, like you are only at the beginning of this journey yes, with I releasing am, albums. but I, I want to... Uh, I'm partly... Well, you know, it's an expensive undertaking, and I have gotten past the break-even point, which makes me very happy, and I also have an arrangement with the Japanese, so they're licensing material from me. So it looks like it's not going to break me and may even eventually be profitable. But I don't want to flood the market with this material, and also I have a limited amount of time and energy and I've got other projects in the works, so I don't want to just, you know, the first two came out, and maybe next year another two. I was thinking of getting another double album out before the end of the year, but maybe not. I'm not sure yet. Why did you decide to do this in the first place, Lori? Why was it important to release this music? Because, the, well, the main reason, really, is that the music is so incredibly great. I mean, it's as good as anything that Art ever recorded. I'm not rec- I'm not releasing anything that I don't love. You know, that's number 1. And the other reason is that um because Art is no longer touring and because Fantasy Records, the label that uh owns both Art's contemporary recordings and his Galaxy recordings. We should because, say by contemporary you mean recordings that appeared on the label contemporary. On the not, label, con- right. the, the very, very famous classic jazz uh, contemporary records label that was run by Les Koenig in the 50s and 60s. And um, anyway, that was purchased by Fantasy, a lo- and then art recorded for Galaxy. And now that label has been sold to Concord Jazz, and I'm not going to say anything against them, far from it, but they have other priorities. And I think, you know, whereas Ralph Caffel, who was the president of Fantasy, had an idea of a number of albums that he could sell and was willing to release new, you know, new posthumous stuff, they really aren't. They're not, you know, they figure they've got enough art pepper in their catalog and they have a lot of it still available, but it's, you know, I I used to release this stuff from time to time through Ralph Caffel, through Fantasy, so now that is not a possibility, so I'm doing it myself. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, we don't need to get into a, a ton of detail on this, but I'm interested in, in what it actually takes to get one of these from your cassette tape collection to our ears? Well, it's uh, pretty straightforward. Some of them are on cassette. Some of them are actually on reel-to-reel. And uh, what I first have to do is I, after a couple of mistakes, 
I found my mastering guy. I've been using Wayne Pete, who's a keyboardist here in L.A. and, and uh, has a recording studio here in L.A. And uh, he was recommended through a circuitous route, and he understood right away what art should sound like because, as you know, as a fan, art had a very... Um, I mean, when you heard Art Pepper, you knew it wasn't anybody else. And so a generic saxophone sound is not going to get it. It has to sound like art. And Wayne understands that. And so he remasters the material as best he can. With the software around today, it is possible to not only clean the tapes up, but actually the Abashiri, the, the first two albums set, had, was recorded with Dolby, and it had that horrible uh, kind of hiss on it. And he re- not only removed that, but he enhanced the middle areas without killing the high areas or, or making them squeaky. And it was really, he's, he's wonderful. So that's the main thing that has to be done. Then I go to a manufacturing company. I've been using Rainbow Records, which is a very, very big a manufacturing company out here, and then I lay, find the photographs, write the liner note, lay out the booklet and the cover, and uh, get all that to Rainbow, and they manufacture the albums. That's it. <laughs> you you make that you make that sound so simple. You just use the the personal pronoun I in almost every one of those cases to I, you know to having to lay out. The yeah, liners have, yourself, I, the whole I, thing. I have to, yeah, I have to tell you, I have a guy who has been working with me on some other projects who can do layout. He's he's real good with Illustrator and the computer, and and he's laid out other albums because he's also a musician and uh, has done album cover work and liner work for the, for other bands. So he generally lays that out for me. And that is in usable format for the record company. If I didn't have him, I would have to work for the work with the art department of the manufacturing right, company. Right. And I don't think also, that they release. would be as tolerant or as red car or know. as <laughs> as delighted to please me. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> so.
Now, yeah. I wonder what was the what was the trigger for these these two albums that we actually have? Was it that you came across these particular recordings and said these need to get out, or was it that you said I need to get more music out f- from art, and then you found rec- the things that you wanted to release first? Well, the way it worked was I had decided that I was going to release some stuff, but I kept putting it off. And with, you know, fans get in touch with me online and they say, boy, I sure wish you'd put out the uh, last concert because I can't get it anymore. It was released by the Japanese, I think, and maybe one other label, but, you know, it's not around anymore. And and, uh, I thought, okay, the first one will be the last concert. And I started putting materials together for that. And then I got a call from Travel and Leisure magazine uh, from an editor there. And apparently somebody wanted to do a piece about Abashiri Japan. And there was a rumor that Art Pepper had played there. I don't know where they got this information or why they were calling. And they they were basically fact-checking with me. And I said, yes, not only did he play there, says I, thinking fast, but uh, in fact I'm about to release an album of material that was recorded there. Because when this guy said the word Abashiri, uh, I was reminded of actually one of my favorite concerts that Art ever played, one of the most memorable that I was ever at. And it was, you know, I was planning to release it down the road some. But when he said that, I thought, oh, article in Travel and Leisure, I released the album at the same time, publicity, you know. So I said, yeah, I'm about to release it. And he said, when? And, you know, we talked a little bit about it. And uh, I, got, I got to work. And he never called me back. And the article, as far as I know, never appeared. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I put out the album. Well, we have him to thank then, even if he yeah, never wrote do. the piece. It's, yeah, uh, we do. It's great that he provided a spark. Uh-huh. Well, let's let's talk about this concert. This is uh, Unreleased Art Volume 1, the complete Abashiri concert, recorded in November of 1981 with a band that uh, featured George Cables on piano, the, the perfect foil for art as far yeah. as I'm concerned, David Williams on bass, and the great drummer Carl Burnett. Now, I first want to address the fact that these, this album and the other unreleased art volume two were recorded within about a year of art's passing. This one in the right. end of 81 and the other one in May of 82. Mm-hmm. And for many musicians, particularly musicians who have to depend on their mouths to play their instrument, the kind of, if they're ill or if they're at the end of their recording career, often the music just lacks the punch that it had right. earlier in their career when they were young. And man, that's not the case for these no, records. No. Art is just on fire. In fact, Art's embouchure became stiffer. You know, he he actually started playing a bit harder. He was not, um, he, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't lured into that by Charlie Parker. He kept his own sound during the Charlie Parker years, but as he got older, he just, uh, I would say that his playing got more outwardly emotional, whereas before the emotion was held in and restrained, um, it was it was out there. He would he would just throw it all out there, and so he actually played stronger than he had when he was a kid. 
It's, That's true. It's interesting about this concert. I lived in Japan for quite a while and have been oh, to a lot of great. a lot of jazz concerts in Japan. And Japanese crowds are normally famous for being very reserved, but right. that's not the case on this Abashiri concert. What made this concert so special? Right. Well, the thing is that uh, I was told that people in Abashiri, uh, which is the north, uh, which is in the northernmost island, uh, Hokkaido, of Japan that those people are closer to being Mongols or something. You know, they're, they're not uh, as refined as the Japanese that you find, uh, you know, in the other islands. And this is, this is the rumor. I don't know whether it has any basis in fact at all. All I know is that these people were just wild. I mean, because we did a couple of other gigs on Hokkaido, and it was the same way. I mean, they drank more, they were more effusive, they yelled for solos, whereas most Japanese would politely clap. And uh, it was, that was the kind of crowd that could stir art to real heights. You know, he loved a responsive audience, and that's what he got in uh, Hokkaido and especially in Abashiri. It was just wonderful. There's a version on the second disc of Body and Soul, and, uh, I mean, that's a tune you wouldn't think there'd be anything else to ring out of that tune. It's been played so many millions of times, but uh, it's a it's a breathtaking performance, and at the end of it, Art even comments that he thinks it was one of the nicest things he'd ever played. Yeah. It, it seems like uh, at this period he was finding kind of new depths within himself as a musician. Yeah, I think he definitely was. I think he was, because a lot of his, you know... Art was an addict, and he drank a lot, and a lot of that just had to do with his uh, kind of upbringing, kind of Germanic upbringing with his grandmother, uh, where he wasn't supposed to be loud, he wasn't supposed to be emotional, he had to keep, you know, a real man is, you know, is very restrained and doesn't show emotion. But in his later years, he just, uh, he, he loosened up a lot, and he lost that. And all of the emotion that was there came out in those ballads. I mean, I, I really, and I'm not alone, I really think Art was the greatest ballad player in the world. I don't think anybody could do a ballad better than Art.
can you talk about the relationship between art and pianist George Cables? Oh, well, it was a love affair, you know. I mean, those two, they communed on a level that was, that was really amazing. Art just loved George. I mean, just loved him. And I got the impression that, you know, that this had happened to him before with Hampton Hawes, that they, that they loved each other this way, and uh, with a couple of other musicians. Because when people treated art with respect and affection, and he knew that they weren't jiving, and when they were as great a musician as George is, uh, he just was very responsive to that, you know. Art was not cool, you know what I mean? He was not cool. And uh, he really responded to warmth. And George was uh, a generous, warm musician in every possible way. And a sweet, sweet guy. None of that was, you know, I mean, when you tour with people, you get to know them pretty well. And I got to know George pretty well on the road. And none of that was put on. George was just, you know, a big candy cupcake. <laughs> I don't know. George <laughs> is just a sweet guy. I, uh, I've been had a chance to, to interview George as well and uh, about some of his own projects. Mm-hmm. And also, because I'm such a fan of arts, always have talked about art whenever that's, mm-hmm. that chance has come up. And he had, you know, the same kind of amazing and warm things about yeah. you know, finding a real musical soulmate. And yep. it really shows on this recording. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Now, uh, I, I want to, uh, before we move on to uh, Volume 2, I, I hope that you could just uh, talk a little bit about the interesting circumstances in which you and Art met and how that relationship blossomed. Well, um, it was the late 60s, and I was a victim of what my cousin very cleverly called overboogie which was a, a, a kind of an illness that went around during the 60s. And, uh, and I wound up in Synanon because I was drinking, taking pills, and smoking pot all day long and basically just, you know, out of my mind. And uh, became suicidal as a result of that lifestyle. And um, I went into I, uh, circuitous circumstances brought me to Synanon, which seemed like the only uh, thing I could do. It was recommended to me by somebody. And Tell folks and I, what Synanon is. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Synanon was the first uh, residential drug treatment program in the world. And uh, people would go in there and stay there and get well, and they would work jobs, and they would play the Synanon game three times a week, which was kind of like group therapy, and uh, basically the group pressure was what got everybody well, you know, the group pressure to conform to a standard and to, uh, group pressure is an amazing thing, and it can, it can heal you as much as it can drag you down. So this was positive group pressure, and it was really good. And uh, it did an, an awful lot for me. You know, I have no no uh, problems with, with Synanon. A number of people who stayed there for a lot of years really are bitter about it because it did, after I, Art and I left, it did come, become kind of a cult-like. 
Well, not kind of. It became a cult, and some really bad things happened. And But that didn't happen during my time there. And so Art went in there not because he wanted to, but because he really had nowhere else to go. And um, he had friends there. He had Dauphine friends there who were begging him to come in and, you know, and get cured. And we met there, and uh, we had this great love affair. And then they stopped smoking, and Art was sneaking off to smoke. And a friend of his had already left, and doing doing a crime in Synanon could have horrible repercussions. You'd get your head shaved and be humiliated, and it was, you know, Art would never have been able to tolerate that. And uh, he was well. He was physically well again. So he was sneaking off to smoke, and then a friend of his left and called him up and said, oh, we're out here and we're having a great time. So Art left, and I knew he was leaving. It was kind of, you know, we kind of thought it was the end of the relationship. And then after he was out for a while, he wrote to me, and he said, I'm doing okay. I'm keeping books for these mutual friends of ours who had a bakery, and come and join me. And I didn't believe him, but I really wanted to do a book about his life. He had been telling me the stories of his life since the day I met him, and and they were just wonderful, and he told them beautifully. And I just thought, God, that could be such a wonderful book. And so that was my justification for leaving Synanon. And I got myself a place, and I also went to work for the bakery, and we wrote Straight Life together. And it did turn out to be a wonderful book, not yeah. only one of the greatest jazz autobiographies ever, but also, I think, just think one of the best autobiographies, period. I think so, too. So, I, I think it's really good. I mean, I, I think I was right, you know, that that art had a story to tell and a way of telling it that was unique, that there was nobody else in the world like him. And uh, so, you know, because he was a genius storyteller, I believe, and he showed that in his music, and he showed that when he told these stories. Had he, uh, during the Synanon period, had he stopped playing? No, no. He was playing tenor all through Synanon. He, he didn't have his own horn, but he got hold of a tenor. And so he was playing for dances. He was playing with bands. He was playing. Phil Woods came uh, visiting, and he played with Phil Woods. And Frank Rehack, who was a... Uh, trombone player who had actually worked with, I think, Charlie Parker, among others. Frank was in Synanon, and, and I think he'd been in the Woody Herman Band or something. Anyway, Frank was in Synanon, so, you know, there was a nice musical community there. In fact, uh, Charlie Hayden had been a Synanon graduate. He was gone when we got there, but Charlie had been through there. And when Art got out, was it easy to reestablish his career? Well, he didn't want to. He didn't want to play anymore because he thought it would just be too emotionally draining and he would use drugs again and he would, you know, just screw up his life again. And he just wanted to relax. And, and we used to go play paddle tennis and he worked at the bakery. You know, that, that was how he felt initially. And then a guy he had known, in, a drummer he had known in Synanon had a... The, and he actually got on Aid to the Totally Disabled, which was a brilliant move on his part. And he really, he was really proud of that. 
uh, on the basis of the fact that he really was pretty disabled. He had had his spleen rupture and had all this surgery and had a hernia, and he, he was in pretty bad shape. Um, but this guy, Lou Mallon, had a casual band. They were doing bar mitzvahs and weddings and things of that nature. And he asked Art if he'd like to make some extra money, and Art said, sure. And that was the road back. And then somebody invited Art to a uh, festival, a clarinet uh, festival at some college. Uh, the Buffet Musical Instrument Company asked Art if he would come. And they gave him an entire wardrobe of horns, including a piccolo. I mean, all the way from a piccolo to a tenor sax and everything in between. And, uh, and he started doing college clinics. And then the book came. And then Les Koenig saw that he was together and recorded a couple of, re- released an album that had been in the can and recorded a new album, uh, The Trip, uh, with Hampton Hawes and Charlie. I mean, with the, no, the first one was with Hamp. The second, that was the Living Legend. The second one was um, with Shelley Mann, Charlie Hayden, and Hampton Hawes. And that was, uh, and then there was another one. God, yeah, okay. Then there was The Trip, and that was with Elvin Jones. And David Williams, that's when we met David for the first time. So Les was recording him again. The albums were selling in Japan, which, yeah, and we went to Japan, and Art got a tremendous greeting there. And I will be releasing some of the stuff that Art did with Cal Jader there and on the radio and uh, on that first trip in 77. And then the book came out, and John Snyder and Fantasy Records together, because by then Les had died and Art was with Fantasy, uh, they got us going on a book tour. And Art was performing in every city and being interviewed by journalists in every city. And his career was full tilt back. Was Art surprised by how people felt about him in Japan? He couldn't believe it. He thought he was dreaming. He just couldn't believe it. I mean, they were lined up around the block. It was... He couldn't believe it. And they were coming for autographs. And, and I mean, one girl shook his hand, and then she just burst into tears because the emotion was so great. And it was like... And I must say, Art was made for that role. He ate it up. He liked it, 
didn't think there was anything wrong with it. <laughs> you know, he just thought, oh, finally, you know, it was great. It's it's just funny to think that there are some kids who had a bar mitzvah that featured Art Pepper. Oh yeah, a yeah. lot of them, <laughs> and and wedding receptions and things with, things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's crazy. I know. In fact, Art did one bar mitzvah, and this guy came up to the bandstand and said, "Aren't you Art Pepper?" And Art <laughs> said, "Yeah." And the guy said, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> Ah, I can believe it. Yeah. So, volume two of uh, Unreleased Art is the last concert. It was recorded May 30th, 1982, during Mm -hmm. the Cool Jazz Festival at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And uh, this is an album which features the same bassist and drummer, but at this point, uh, George Cables had, if I'm not mistaken, gone off to play with Sarah Vaughan, I think? Yeah, he was running Sarah's... Sarah Vaughan's band. He was the band manager or the band something. He was in charge. And uh, and I remember Carl saying, George is not going to like this. You'll see. He's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, meanwhile, we took Roger Kellaway on the road with us. Can you talk about this, this show, what it was like? Oh, man, it was a great show. Um, we'd been touring nonstop with this band. So, because this was just one stop on the tour, but it was the last stop on the tour. So the band was really tight, and um, and everything was just working beautifully. And we got in there, and the crowd went wild. And backstage, before we went on, Zoot Sims walked into the room, and Art and Zoot, basically, they grew up together. I mean, they were kids together. They were teenage musicians together, and so that was really sweet. And Art does dedicate one of the two. When you're smiling, he dedicates that to to Zoot. And I got to take a picture of them together. And and Voice of America asked if they could, came up to me and asked if they could record. And uh, I had heard a rumor a lot of people say that this couldn't be, but that that Benny Goodman had said that Voice of America was staffed by ex-Nazis, and I wanted Voice of I'm Jewish, you know, but I wanted Voice of America to record this concert. Whenever there was a possibility of getting a decent recording of something, Art wanted it very much, and so did I. So I said, "You aren't." staffed by ex-Nazis, are you? And they said, no. I said, okay, good, record it. <laughs> because I'm sure had they been, they would have come right out and yeah, exactly. <laughs> told you. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why, yes, we are, Mrs. Yes, Pepper. Is that are, a problem? Really, they're, they're totally reformed. <laughs> That's right. They love jazz, though. <laughs> right. <laughs>
so this uh this concert, as we said, features Roger Kellaway rather than George Cables, and I wonder how that was different, how that made the band different. Well, it, in many ways, uh, there were things that Roger did. Roger, to me, is very similar to Milcho Leviev in his approach to jazz, which is a kind of, you know, balls out every, you know, technically brilliant... Uh, intricate, kind of uh, sometimes even over-the-top kind of playing. And Art actually preferred the kind of restraint that George brought to the gig. But one of the things that both Milcho and Roger did to Art was they forced him into almost a competitive mood so that he was pushing much harder, I think, than he would have. It was almost the same as having a wildly responsive audience, you know. And he really, uh, there were things about that that were very good, that I liked a lot. The other thing about Roger is that some of Art's charts were very difficult, and not everybody could play them, you know. But Roger could play anything, so which I knew because Art had worked with him a few times at uh, Pat Senator's place in Malibu, uh, Pasquale's, which was a very nice club that was around for a while. And so um, I knew that Roger could do it, you know. And I was the one who... who uh, you know, on one of these websites, people have these discussions about everything, and somebody had read the liner note and said, Laurie picked Art's bands. You know, it was like, that music in the background is my email thing, which is uh, Mambo de la Pinta. I can hear it clearly. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, got the mail. Anyway, so, so uh, it, to some extent, yeah. I did, because Art hated that stuff. He didn't want to offend people. You know, if he ran into somebody, well, why didn't you pick me? Or they'd be thinking, why didn't you pick me? And he didn't want to have to say, he just loved to be able to say, oh, you know, Lori did it, and I don't know, you know. But, of course, if he had said, no, I don't want Roger, I would have said, oh, okay, we'll find somebody else. But he didn't say that. I said, Roger can read, and Roger can swing, and I think Roger would be a good choice. So, what was we, were surprised, we were surprised that he came on the road with us. Really? He was making a fortune in the studios in those days. That was before everything went overseas or got electronic.
What was life like being on the road? Was it was it difficult? Did it did it make the marriage difficult, or was it an enhancement for your relationship? It was both, but it was you know one of the great things about being on the road was it kept Art very too busy to get into trouble. Basically, you know, the most he could do is he could drink too much, and I did my because I was there all the time. I could sort of to a certain extent prevent that. But, um, so that was good. Also, Art was getting on. He was physically, you know, needed to save his energy. Uh, so we would go from one town to the next, and he would just stay in the hotel room, and I would bring food, which was very difficult because nobody had to go. I don't know whether they do now in Europe, but they sure didn't then. So I brought a Boy Scout mess kit, you know, like a camping kit or an army kit. And I would bring these little tin plates into these restaurants, and I would order food for him and bring it up to the room. And so he didn't really, once or twice, he went out with me, you know, and explored the streets. We were in Brussels, and we ran into Bill Holman and his wife, which was terrific. It's totally wild. But mostly he didn't go out at all. He stayed in the hotel room and watch TV, dub TV, you know, TV in foreign languages. He just watched it. And, you know, if he could get hold of a newspaper, he would read the newspaper and follow sports. But he, So life on the road wasn't that bad, but it was a 24-hour job for me. But art was a 24-hour job for me no matter where we were, so it really didn't make much difference. Did you ever get tired of hearing this music? Oh, no. Just the opposite. You know, there would be times when I really got tired of being on the road, of dealing with all of Art's complaining, because Art was like the world's... He, he said the only person he knew who, who whined as much as he did was Charlie Hayden. And, uh, but Art was the world's biggest whiner, and it was just like a joke, and everybody knew it, including Art. So I would get tired of it sometimes, and I would get tired of, you know, all the work. And then I'd go and sit in the audience or stand in the wings, and I'd hear the music, and it was like a religious experience every single time. And I'd say, oh, that's right. That's, that's why we do all this. Definitely worth it. Wow. You know? So what's the response been like to the release of these records? Incredibly gratifying. Uh both the reviews and the fan responses have been just uh, heartwarming. And people have, you know, emailed me and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And what could be better than that? I mean, that's, that's wonderful that they appreciate it and love it and are keeping art alive in that way. And because, you know, I think it's spectacular music. You know, every time I listen to it, it's almost like I forgot, and then I listen to it, and I'm bowled over all over again.
Art Pepper, ladies and gentlemen, Art Pepper. That's Art Pepper from the album Unreleased Art, Volume 2. My guest has been Lori Pepper. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. If you haven't subscribed yet, why don't you take a minute and sign up right now? It's completely free, and it will just ensure that you always have the latest episode of the show whenever you want to listen to it. You can also listen, again for free, at thejazzsession.com, which features episodes of the show, plus written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. The site also features a link to the Jazz Session Cause of the Month. This month, it's Tipitina's Foundation, helping to restore New Orleans' musical culture. For more interviews and reviews, you can visit allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find my writing there beside that of many other jazz experts and fans. You can contact me via email at jason at thejazzsession.com or call the show at 585-473-5304. The Jazz Session mailing list is available at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the world of me. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. Thank you so much for being here. Remember to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back again next time, won't you, for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.